What is up, friends? Welcome back to Bitcoin and Markets, the show that keeps you ahead of the curve in Bitcoin, macroeconomics, and geopolitics. Today, we're going to take a look at this ultrasound money thesis that has come out of Ethereum very recently. Um, no, this is not a altcoin podcast. I know I did NFTs last time, and now I'm doing this ultrasound money thesis. But you know, 90% of my commentary here is going to be reacting to the criticisms of Bitcoin on issuance and transaction fees and mining and proof of stake, all that stuff. So it's, it's a very good learning process. I, I learn a lot by researching for the show, breaking these topics down, and I hope you guys learn a lot too. If you'd like to support this type of content, go to bitcoinandmarkets.com, become a paid member. You get some member benefits like an extra newsletter and access to a special member room on our Discord server. Uh, but you also will support this show, my other podcast, FedWatch, my free weekly newsletter that goes out every Friday called The Fundamentals Report, and my Discord server where you know everything is uncensored in there and we just have a great conversation on many different topics. So go to bitcoinandmarkets.com. That's also where you'll find the show notes to this episode with all the links and stuff. Okay, let's get right into it. Where should we start? Where did I where did I hear of this? I, I think I heard it first on the POV Crypto podcast. Um, that is with CK and David. CK is a Bitcoiner, obviously working with Bitcoin Magazine. And, C and David is an Ethereum guy that has his own other podcast called Bankless. And I think he has another uh, company in, in the Ethereum kind of ecosystem. But they were talking about ultrasound money. Then there was a tweet kind of some tweeting going on about this meme and uh not very much was written actually about it uh, i did find an episode of the bankless podcast the, where they interviewed justin drake who supposedly came up with this um, but i couldn't find anything written by him i did find in the first like four or five pages of google results i did find a couple write-ups from the bankless um podcast themselves um, and they were pretty in-depth, like they were real long blog posts about this. So that is my source material for this thesis, this ultrasound money thesis. So what do they mean by ultrasound money? Um, I think the main idea is just about reducing issuance and burning fees. So um, it's all about supply and about pushing that supply negative even. So they think sound money is very low, low inflation and... Uh, so ultrasound money would be negative inflation or uh, deflation. Now, the, the real definition of sound money is not related to that, really. I mean, I guess you could say it's, it's tangentially related, but sound money for generations has been known as a naturally emerging money. So it just emerges on the market. It's not a fiat like a money that has legal tender laws from some government. It's a naturally occurring money. Uh, that has a stable purchasing power. So um, for a long time, uh, gold was considered sound money because it naturally became the international reserve uh, currency and it had a very stable value. But remember, gold has an inflation rate of about 1% to 2% a year, uh, depending on the price, I guess. It could be zero. So it is not deflationary. 
it actually they every year there's more gold mined and if the the price of gold did would double uh, you would expect it to be at the top end of that, maybe two, two and a half percent even. Um, it is hard to get in there and increase mining of gold right away. It takes years to find new deposits and stuff. But, you know, if the price goes up dramatically, it incentivizes more mining, gold mining. So it's sound money because as the price would double and then more supply would come on the market, then that price would actually fall right so that's it's a stable exchange value now bitcoin doesn't necessarily claim to be sound money i guess you could say that it is sound money but um mainly bitcoin claims to be hard money and this is a related topic but hard money means that it's hard to produce more bitcoin claims to be the hardest money not the most sound but the hardest and that's because the issuance does not respond to price at all it doesn't matter if the price goes up 100x, which it has many times in Bitcoin's history. It will not affect the issuance. The issuance was dictated in the Genesis block. Um, 21 million coins were pretty much prescribed at that moment. And now people are finding those along the way. But anyway, it, bottom line is it's getting less and less of an issuance. And this, it's approaching this 21 million cap. And that won't change. And that's why it's hard money, because that 21 million cannot change, even if the price goes to $100 million a coin, which I'm not calling for, but <laughs> at least not yet. Um, but if it goes to $100 million a coin, it doesn't matter. You can't produce more of them. So uh, that's why Bitcoin is hard money, and it claims to be hard money, not sound money, really. So really, it would be better if Ethereum claimed to be ultra hard money. But for some reason, they said ultra sound money. So that's kind of the whole idea. <laughs> Man, that was a long explanation. Okay, let's go into the next part. So the next part is about this engine analogy. This is really to explain, well, okay. So what they say is there's, the economy is like an engine. It's an economic engine. And these decentralized networks like Bitcoin or Ethereum are consensus engines. Right, and you get this idea by this uh, terminology, this labeling, that it's about moving forward, and we'll come back to that. That's an important concept. But an engine has inputs and outputs, and it's moving forward. It's turning a form of energy into a form of output, you know, and it's moving forward. So they say there's three parts to this economic engine or consensus engine, and that is a governance function. Then you have like uh, economic activity or producers and a defense so all three of these things must work together now of course right off the top here i don't like this this type of breakdown because i mean there's no mention of being peers and this is a peer-to-peer -peer network these are all peer-to-peer -peer networks supposedly and there's no mention of peers so everybody performs the governance role everybody performs the economic activity role and everybody produces, uh, does the defense role. So I don't like breaking it up into these three parts because it's peers. So there's two ways to keep this engine moving forward. Uh, and that is you have to pay for it, right? So issuance or fees, those are the two ways to pay for it. Uh, moving from block to block, you want the block producers, whether it's miners in 
proof of work, like Bitcoin, or it's stakers in proof of stake, like Ethereum wants to be. So right now, Ethereum is still proof of work, but they're, they're trying to transition over to proof of stake. And for people that don't, I mean, most people understand how Bitcoin works with the mining and stuff, uh, but proof of stake might be new to people. So let me describe that real quick. So proof of stake is an ante. So if you want to produce blocks and get rewarded, then you have to put this ante up and that is called a stake. So you're, you're becoming a stakeholder in this economic engine, uh, by putting up this ante and then you enter this round robin so it's completely random right you just get selected and then you get selected a certain percentage of the time based on the percentage or the proportion of your stake to the entire stake so that that's that's how that works okay so that was proof of stake now i don't really think these three things these three parts the governmental part the um economic activity part and the defense I don't think that's very applicable and I, they really concentrate on the defensive side. Um, so what are we securing? What, what is this defense securing or protecting? And I think there's, this is a very basic difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum is this idea of security. They never define it in any of these different blog posts and, um, different podcasts. They never define what security is. Sometimes they talk about it being 51% attack. Sometimes they talk about it being this or that. So it's never defined. And I didn't do a control F to see how many times they say security in this blog post, but it's got to be in, in the twenties or thirties. I mean, they use that term a lot and they never define it. So Bitcoiners, I think would define security of the system uh, as maintaining the rules. Because if you maintain the rules of Bitcoin, everything else will fall into place, right? Bitcoin's incentives are aligned with the free market. It's, an ex it's a part of the free market. Um, and the rules make it like a part of nature that can't change. It, it cannot be altered by human intervention, right? It's beyond our capability to do that. And so that puts it in the realm of nature. And once you do that, then everything is aligned. Free markets have aligned incentives, and that's what Bitcoin uh, takes advantage of. Um, so for Bitcoin, the security is simply maintain the rules. And how do you do that? Well, Bitcoin does that by decentralization mainly. Um, everybody running a node, you are in charge of the software that you run, uh, and they would have to come and uh, attack everybody, every node out there, take every node offline to stop the Bitcoin network. So. It's all about decentralization. Bitcoin doesn't pay for security with issuance, okay, or fees. It pays for security by you running your own node to maintain the rules. So that is what Bitcoin would say. And I think Ethereum would call security, um, and they have called security this in the past, is liveness. Liveness. And that is the concept of continuing to finalize blocks moving forward. And I told you this economic engine piece that is all about moving forward, you know, inputs and outputs and inputs and outputs and moving forward. That is a, an Ethereum logic that, uh, or right. That fits in line with this Ethereum ideology of security being liveness, keeping it going. You must not stop. 
And they don't really even care about the rules, to be honest with you, because um, they change the rules all the time. Now, when Bitcoin upgrades, it uh, tweaks the rules, but it never breaks the rules. So, um, for example, if I if this is a probably oversimplified, but um, you know, I could say that this maximum number was ten in this certain variable, and then I come by and I update, I provide an update, and I say, oh, actually, the maximum number is nine. So nine would have been valid under the old rules of a maximum of ten. But now it's a maximum of nine, right? So I didn't ever break the rules. I, I actually tightened them a little bit. So that's how Bitcoin upgrades. It never breaks the rules. But Ethereum replaces the rules. That's what they that's what called is called a hard fork. They hard fork their network and they create a new network with new rules, pretty much. Um and as long as they can get everybody over, or a majority of people over, <laughs> then they're fine with that. And they don't really even care because the a lot of times you might have 5,000 Ethereum nodes, say, before a hard fork. And then after the hard fork, you have 4,000. Well, you just forked off 1,000 people. 1,000 nodes didn't want to come, uh, didn't want to upgrade. And you don't care, right? <laughs> you don't care. You just keep moving. You don't care about the rules. The rules are not necessarily important. It's about a social contract and it's about liveness. That's it. Moving forward, moving forward with the social contract. So that's, I'm repeating myself here, but Bitcoin is about the rules. That's what security is. And Ethereum, it's about uh, moving forward. So anyways, um, I think I beat that one to death here, but that is the engine analogy. Now, let's dive deeper into these funding mechanisms for this engine. So like I said, you have issuance or transaction fees. And all of this is according to this sound money thesis. I might say it differently. Well, I probably would if I was describing this, but um, I'm just going along their theory here. So the funding mechanisms for this economic engine are issuance or transaction fees. Let's dive into issuance first. So issuance is the new coins that are created in each block or released. In Bitcoin's case, it's released because we know it's 21 million and we know the schedule is going to be at this block. You're going to have this many released. It's they were all all 21 million were created in the Genesis block. And they're being slowly released every block that's found. But in, in Ethereum, it's not like that because they don't have a hard cap. Um, there wasn't like any set number that was created in the Genesis block except for the pre-mined coins. <laughs> pre-mined coins were. Uh, that's another discussion. So they call issuance the pristine and raw or pure energy. That is that is the best, cleanest form of energy that this, the economic engine can use is issuance. And why is that? Because it doesn't recycle value. Actually, what, it, what they say is good about it is that it takes the value from all other coins. It takes a little bit of value through inflation. So this is the idea. If you have 100 coins out there in the economy and you have your economy moving and then somebody prints 10 more coins, but it's still chasing the same amount of goods. All the prices will most likely go up by 10%. Every coin in that case 
would lose 10% of its value and give it to the new coins. The new coins would steal that value from everybody else. And they say this is good because everybody pays for it. It's pristine, pure energy from the network itself. Um, and it's predictable. They say it's predictable. So my disagreement here is, well, I'm going to start with the last thing first, predictability. Um, it, it is predictable to a certain extent, but it is random. And random, by definition, means it's unpredictable. Uh, you do know that this many coins are going to come out every block, but you don't know if you will get rewarded, if you will find that reward. And even under proof of stake, I don't know, I haven't looked at their implementation of this, but I would assume that it's it's a random process, right? And so out of, let's say, 100 blocks, you have 1% of the stake or the hash rate. And out of 100 blocks, it's random, so you would assume that you would get one of those blocks out of every 100. But at some point, you might get zero out of... 300 and at another point you might get six out of 300 right or you might get one out of a thousand and then out of the next thousand you get nine right so there's a lot of variability within this randomness even of issuance it's, it's over you have to plan over the long term and say okay over a few months i'm going to get one percent then you can be a little bit more uh, in the ballpark than if you just say, today, how many am I going to get? Well, you probably are going to be wrong. So it's, it's unpredictable in that fashion. I'll also say that it's, it's more than uh, just stealing value from every coin. There's distortions involved in that, right? So every economy has a capital structure. And that just means, you know, these resources, this equipment, this investment, this amount of money, these, this amount of labor is going towards this industry and that industry and that industry. And, you know, the economy of a snapshot in time, where is everything allocated? That is the idea behind a capital structure. And if you have a, a source of distortion, you're going to get a distortion in the capital structure. So inflation is a distortion. And you have new money coming in and the capital structure is going to be skewed towards that new money. This is in Bitcoin as well. It's in gold. It's definitely in fiat, the system we have now. That's why the financial system or the financial industry is so big. It's outsized. Uh, it's out of place how big it is compared to the productive part of the economy. So all of this capital structure gets skewed toward the source of inflation. Right. So it's not only stealing money from coins and giving a disincentive to saving, really, um, but it's also skewing the capital structure, skewing the economy towards that source of inflation. Most likely that would be like people staking or people keeping their coins on an exchange that's going to stake for them. Right. And so these exchanges would become more powerful because they'd be able to take a fee for that and et cetera, et cetera. There's, there's other ways that this, this would happen, but it, the capital structure would be skewed in that direction. All right, let's talk about transaction fees then. Now, according to this theory, the sound ultrasound money thesis, transaction fees are second rate 
they're second rate fuel. They're kind of like um, recycled. They they aren't pure out of the ground. They actually uh, have to be recycled. They're not a pure form of energy. And they say that they are somewhat unpredictable, okay, or more unpredictable. They also say that it's a drain on the economy because people have to pay this out of their own pocket. And we'll get into a little bit more why this is a drain on the economy or why they say it is. So, of course, I disagree with this characterization. Um, starting again with the predictability piece, like we got to with the issuance and the randomness, you have to plan three months out, right? Or, or with mining, you have to plan even a year out because you have to order the new equipment and maybe, and maybe you're going to start up a new facility move facilities so you have to build that out right there's other investments going on it's part of the free market process and so um you have to plan way ahead of time and so when you're doing that you're not going to be like okay look at how high the fees are right now we're probably gonna uh over the next three days we're gonna get really high fees but then it's gonna go down and then da -da -da -da. no you're just gonna average it you're gonna average what you think the fees are gonna be over a long period of time that's that's it is unpredictable, but I would say it's it's nearly as predictable as issuance over the long term. And in mining, even in staking, you have to plan a, a long time out. I think there's a like a waiting period when you want to take your stake out of proof of stake in most of these systems. I, I saw Ethereum a long time, years ago when they were first doing some of their variables for this. I think it was 120 days. But I could be wrong about that. Um, but there is a waiting period. I'm almost 100% sure that there's a waiting period to take your stake out of the system. So you have to plan. You have to plan ahead. Okay, so that's the predictability. And now things that they don't mention about fees. There, there's, they don't mention the distortions in with inflation, right? And they don't mention the lack of distortions with fees. So fees are paying for a service. I'm paying to get my transactions included in the blockchain. And there's competition. We know this because miners, if they include their own transaction, they don't have to have a fee. They just, they just can have zero fee transactions because they are mining the block themselves. And so this, there, there is no distortion like there is with issuance. It's actually uh, responding to the natural free market incentives. There is no distortion with transaction fees. Second thing that's great about fees is that they provide, they can provide a incentive for layer two, a dynamic incentive. So yes, there's going to be periods of time where fees are higher, uh, and that is going to push people into using apps on top of Bitcoin that can consolidate transactions. So uh, high fees provide an incentive for innovation in these apps on top of Bitcoin. Next is the next great benefit of fees is that it does provide a unique payment to honest miners. So they they talk about a little bit about fifty one percent of tax in this this piece. And let me just describe that real quick. So um, in in mining, like I said, it's random. But if you have 51% of the computer power, then you're going to get, over the long term, you're going to get 51% of the blocks and you can outpace 
the rest, the other 49% of the network. And so you can technically disregard all other blocks and just mine your own blocks. And you would be able to stay ahead of the rest of the network. Now in Bitcoin, that doesn't mean that you can change the rules because the rules, the security of the system is based on decentralization and nodes on the network. But you can produce empty blocks or you can only, you know, confirm transactions from your friends. And so there is a negative, a big negative to a 51% attack. But fees are not paid to an empty block. So issuance is. Issuance does not discriminate against the empty block of, in a 51% attack. But fees do. And you could technically keep fees going up and up and up. So during a 51% attack, the, the incentive to honest miners to include those transactions continues to go up and incentivize the network to continue to go from 49. Maybe they can add some more hash rate and get up to 51 themselves, right? So the incentive is unique from transaction fees for honest miners during a 51% attack. And that's extremely powerful. Um, game theoretically, that's extremely, extremely powerful. And that does not exist in an issuance model. And th this is also, they, they talk a lot about how hard it is to attack proof of stake, but I've never heard them ever say that. They've never once included that little piece in their analysis. And I don't know if it's because they don't know if they're ignorant of it or if, um, they are malicious that they don't want to include something like that that cannot be replicated with pure issuance and also uh, is a big bonus to proof of work. So anyway, that's, um, that is issuance and transaction fees. Let me just sum up this part. So, cause this is a big part of this ultrasound money thesis. Um, issuance is inflationary. And it builds up distortions over the long term. So it's unstable over the long term. And it only incentivizes blocks and not transactions or even smart contract execution. Uh, it's just uh, a incentive for block production. Now, fees are not inflationary. Uh, their incentives are aligned with the free market. So there won't be these distortions that we see building up in, in the issuance model. They provide a natural incentive to innovation on layer two. And they reward blocks and transactions. So there is a added defense against the 51% attack. So all in all, I would, I would conclude the opposite. They conclude that issuance is pristine and pure energy and transaction fees are second class citizens. I would, I would say the exact opposite, that fees are the preferred fuel in this economic engine and issuance would be a necessary evil at some point. I mean, yes, right now, Bitcoin used issuance as a dis, you know, as part of the distribution mechanism and bootstrapping of the network, but it's slowly going away where this uh, proposed proof of stake for Ethereum, the minimum viable issuance that they talk about, that's just a fancy way of saying whatever we think is necessary, we will print. That's what our issuance policy is. Let's move a little bit more into this mining versus proof of stake. So in the ultrasound money thesis, they have a criticism against mining. 
And that criticism is that it is expensive. So that creates an incentive for miners to have to con uh, continually sell their coins. They get rewarded their coins, but they have to pay all their costs and things like that. So they have to constantly be selling coins. And then they come up with this idea that um, selling coins is discharging the energy within the coins and buying is charging the coins. But they, they never realize that for every seller, there has to be a buyer, right? You don't just uh, sell your coins out into the ether. You actually sell your coins to somebody that buys them. And so <laughs> it would be discharging and charging all at the same time. Uh, another aspect of that that they don't, I don't think they understand is that in a free market and voluntary exchange, both it's a win-win situation, right? Both parties value what they're getting more than what they're giving up. And so it's a win-win. We can say that's a net positive. And so... Instead of saying that this mining and having to sell coins is providing a constant sell pressure, what I would say is it's providing a constant um, exchange pressure, right? And people are benefited by free voluntary exchange. So it's actually providing an incentive, uh, like a virtuous feedback loop incentive to the system. That is the proper way to look at this, not as a constant selling pressure, because for every seller, there's a buyer. And in a free exchange, everybody wins. Also, there's nothing artificial about mining, right? So these miners are doing a job and jobs cost money to do, right? Like uh, products, goods and services cost effort and investment and all of that. If, if there's no such thing as a free lunch, you're always paying for stuff and you always have costs involved. And so um, there's nothing artificial in that sense about mining, that mining is people are paying for the service of mining. And miners are in the free market, just like everybody else. They're open to competition. They're, they have incentive for innovation and all of that. Now, if we flip this and talk about proof of stake, in the same vein proof of stake is quite artificial where proof of work and mining is natural a natural part of the free market it fits right in there in nature proof of stake is completely artificial and they will admit this they'll admit that there is no cost or very near zero cost to proof of stake and they call they say this is efficient they say <laughs> this makes proof of stake more efficient because there's very little to no cost involved and they brag about this. But to me, that is the definition of rent-seeking. Rent-seeking is expecting to be paid for no work. The, one of the best examples I always remember about rent-seeking is a chain on a river. So I own some uh, property on the river, and I put a chain across it, and I charge people tolls just so I can undo my chain so they can get their, their barge through or whatever. I'm adding no value whatsoever, but I'm taking a fee. That's rent-seeking. It's completely inefficient. It's the definition of inefficiency. No, this, this is proof of stake is artificial and it is rent-seeking. 
And proof of stake does not have a distribution mechanism. So Bitcoin, um, when you are mining Bitcoin and you are paying for your costs, you are forcing this virtuous cycle out there, distributing the coins in the economy. So there's like a, a, a floor to, uh, what would you say, velocity. There's a floor to velocity, and that would be the amount that miners have to sell. Proof of stake doesn't have that. Proof of stake is actually very concentrate. It, it produces wealth concentration. The rich get richer, right? Because they are the ones that have money to stake. And they have no cost, so they can just continue to stack their coins, and they can keep getting richer and richer. So this is this that is that goes into this uh, whole idea of a skewed capital structure and a skewed economy towards the source of inflation. Okay, let's go into this last piece um, because I said that there, this whole uh, ultrasound money has to do with issuance and fees, burning fees. And so, what's this thing about burning fees? Uh, they have a new improve, improvement proposal, one five five nine. And this is about burning fees. I don't know exactly what percentage of the fees they want to burn, if it's 70, 80% or something. I, I doubt it's 100, but it's possible. Um, but yeah, so this is a, a proposal that they think is going to be passed. I mean, as long as Vitalik wants it, it's going to be passed, right? That's the centralization of Ethereum. As long as it's being worked on by the Ethereum Foundation, it will pass. There's no like, <laughs> there's, there's no uncertainty there. So they're going to be burning fees, and this is also distortive. They claim that this is good because if I spend, if I burn my fees, I'm increasing everybody's wealth because this is the opposite of inflation, right? So instead of stealing money from everybody, I'm giving money to everybody, giving purchasing power to everybody. But this is also distortive because there's an incentive not to spend. Uh, just like with inflation, there is a capital structure that's being skewed towards the inflation. Well, with deflation, there's a capital structure skew away from the deflation. So there's an incentive not to spend. There's a hidden opportunity cost. If someone else spends and I don't, then I my, all of my coins benefit from them giving me value by burning coins. And so everybody's going to want to put off the spending as much as possible. They were going to want to put off the gas fees. They're going to want to put off all this stuff because there's a hidden opportunity cost to spending. You lose out on getting the appreciation on the coins that you just spent, right? So now we have this the idea of POS and ultrasound money. That's proof of stake. It is admittedly, they admit this and brag about this no cost uh, rent seeking. Plus, they want to add now to it this addition of an opportunity cost to spending by burning the fees. So what I think is going to happen under this uh, new proposal and eventual proof of stake, if they ever get there, is that it will incentivize slower economic activity. And it will uh, the economic demand for the Ethereum ecosystem will slow down. They'll probably have derivatives of some sort, um, et cetera, to try to keep the the velocity going while everybody doesn't want to spend their Ethereum. And slowly but surely, this will just turn into even more of a speculative frenzy than it already is.
All right, guys, I think I'll just wrap it there. Uh, just as a to summarize what we went over here today, because there was a lot that we covered, is uh, we looked into this Ethereum ultrasound money meme uh, thesis, I guess you could say, and looked into the what it is, what sound money is, the engine analogy for this economic engine. Uh, security, the difference why, you know, how Bitcoiners view security and how Ethereans view security. We looked at funding mechanisms, issuance versus transaction fees, and why transaction fees are superior to issuance. There is this inflation distortion that happens with issuance, and that is not there with fees. Plus, there's a lot of extra good things uh, that go along with fees. Mining versus proof of stake, we covered that and how Mining, they call it a constant selling pressure, but in reality, it's a constant incentive towards a virtuous cycle of free exchange. Um, proof of stake has this artificiality where there's admittedly no or very low cost. So it's uh, very similar to rent seeking in that regard and leads to wealth concentration. Um, and there's no distribution mechanism. Then we looked at this EIP 1559, which is the burning of the fees. And I said that this deflationary pressure is also distortive. It will distort the uh, capital structure away from the source of deflation. Just like in inflation, it distorts the capital structure towards the source of inflation. And burning transaction fees has a hidden opportunity cost to spending. Because if you spend it, then you lose out on the gains from burning. All right, that's it for this one. That is it for this one, guys. Thank you for joining me. My name is Ansel Lindner. This is Bitcoin and Markets. This is a listener-funded podcast. To find out more, go to bitcoinandmarkets.com. Uh, that is where you'll also find the show notes for this episode. And while you're there, subscribe to the free weekly newsletter. Uh, that is the best free weekly newsletter in Bitcoin called the Fundamentals Report. And check out the Discord. We're building a nice community over there with lots of simultaneous topics and rooms going at the same time. So BitcoinAndMarkets.com and you'll find all of that information. Thanks for listening. See you next time.